Come on, Rob Peter. Preach the word. Good morning, everybody. All right, so we've been going the last few weeks on uh, a theme. The theme was the Hall of Fame, Heroes of the Faith, and so we're going to continue that here this morning. Um, so I had, I had uh, been presented with, okay, you know, get an option to preach. Who do you want to pick? So I picked Gideon. All right, so I, I feel like I picked Gideon because I feel like I really relate well with Gideon, um, and I, I often do best uh, with topics that I really feel like um, I do best with topics that are maybe a little bit more tangible. So I picked the, I picked the guys who are doing the worst, basically. A lot of times, you know, you, you pick the guys who are at the bottom that can rise to the top, and you go, I can identify, and I, you know, and I and I like that, you know, because sometimes it's hard to feel like you see the heroes and be like, that's cool for him. I'm never going to be that way. You know, but it's cool to see the guy at the bottom that gets to the top, and you're like, I could, I could maybe do that. Um, so Gideon was who I picked. So Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Uh, we're going to be spending some time in the book of Judges, so you're going to have to um, get out your Old Testament here, uh, the book of Judges. Um, but... Uh, the last few weeks, uh, I've been working through, looking at a few different people in the Bible, called out as examples of faith. But Hebrews 11 is really a quick list of notable people in the Bible who have uh, been you know, called out and were commended for their faith. And it's, it definitely is very encouraging to see God holding these guys up, uh, both men and women, as examples, despite clearly having uh, you know, tough stuff happen in their lives. Yeah. Not so ideal Scenarios happen to them, but they, but yet they're on the wall or the hall of fame, you know, for faith. Um, they're not perfect people, which is helpful to start with. And as you can see in scripture, frequently, a lot of times it's the in, most imperfect people that seem to be picked that God is willing to work with and work through, and they, you know, they become something they weren't before. And God has that effect on people. And um, you know, a lot of times these people are lacking faith, which is definitely something that. You know, I feel like it's a daily battle. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just to have that faith. God is going to work. And, you know, this is possible with God. Yeah. Amen. Um, that can change day to day and, and it depends a lot on how I feel. But something to ponder is that God really, uh, God very well might have bigger dreams for your life than you. So let's uh, let's open up to uh, Judges 2. We'll kind of start there. So Gideon was definitely one of the more unlikely individuals of faith. In the, in the book of Judges. Um, but we're going to pick it up a little bit. Uh, we're going to back up a little bit in the scriptures uh, before we look at Gideon, just so we have some context and understand his environment. So in, in Judges 2, it says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who had outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Uh, Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. Uh, they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook, forsook him. That's a weird word all of a sudden. Forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. 
in general, you know, Baal was the fertility god of that area, the Canaanites and the other peoples in that area. So, you know, believed to enable uh, um, the earth to produce crops. And basically it was like, you know, people to produce children. And, uh, and Ashtoreth or Asherah was the fertility goddess that kind of went side by side, just very generally. So, but the worship was based a lot on sensuality, um, prostitution, self-mutilation, and child sacrifice. So it was yep. definitely some funky stuff going on uh, with this. And God did not approve or like it at all. Uh, but picking it back up in, in verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of all their enemies, of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to the other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who were oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up all their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because... This nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me. I will no longer drive out uh, before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord allowed all those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So we see here a little bit of the backstory uh, and what the environment that Gideon is now in. Um, but we see this, this trend. So the people of Israel, it's, it's very cyclical. The people of Israel are doing good up to the leader dies. Um, once out of sight, out of mind, Israel reverts, does evil in the eyes of the Lord, whatever that might be. It's, you know, worshiping uh, the Baals or, or whatever. Um, probably very much like what we saw in the video. Um, he, in turn, inflicts cal- uh, calamity or oppression to kind of wake them up um, to where they're at. They cry out to him for deliverance. Uh, he highlights how they got to where they were by pointing out their sins so they can repent, the purpose so they can repent. He, ra- he raises up a judge to lead Israel to victory, basically out of the oppression. And then as soon as the judge isn't in the picture anymore, the cycle re- begins again. So this, this actually, it's, we see in, in Judges, this is a quick succession, um, of actually representing about 200 years, but there are a number of heroes that rose up and led Israel during this time. There are four people. Uh, Phineal, Ehud, Shamgar, which I love the guy's name, uh, De- and Deborah. And um, so these, these were some of the judges at time that, that God rose up to, to save the Israelites for themse- from themselves, basically, because of this, this pattern of sin that they just kept getting back into. Right. Um, but basically it was the same pattern, uh, more or less, each time. So let's, let's uh, go ahead and look at uh, Gideon. So let's turn over to Judges 6. My first point is, are you listening? All right. So if we read through some of the accounts in Judges, we can see that God didn't always send help at once. So God's usually working on a higher plane than us in regards to how he's molding our character. It's something maybe that 
you might not ever ever necessarily be in touch with that, but God is really you know working on you, and 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 He wants to produce something in you, right. whether you're kind of aware of that or not. Um, but for the most part, it's much easier for us to be able to live in the present, uh, like here and now. This is the immediate difficulty or the crisis that's in front of me at this moment, and so that's what we focus, we tend to focus on, right? Um, we're probably not in, really in touch with how we might have drifted from the relationship that God desires with us. Uh, God was not willing to let go of Israel because of his early pro- earlier promises. Um, he was going to love Israel through thick and thin. And uh, but you know, at times he was exasperated, he was angry, but his like his undying love for Israel was what kept him reengaging, uh, and and just in general with mankind, with us today. Um, but times of crisis are definitely. You know, pretty revealing in terms of we are uh, where we're at with our relationship with God. So you know, they're usually painful and confusing for us because um, we can begin to question like, what's God doing here? Um, and, and we question His goodness, His intentions towards us. Right. I mean, it usually comes up with difficulties. You know, I, I know that we you know we have definitely uh, members here with you know family members who are going through tough things, uh, health things, illness. Those things make you question it. I mean, you just flat out, you know, like, yeah, I believe in God and, until, like, you know, grandma is, is, you know, in the hospital or something. And then it's like, what do you do with it? You know, I mean, it's like it really puts your faith to the test. Um, and the, but the people here, we're looking, uh, we're hoping for a deliverer. Actually, we were supposed to read that scripture, right? Let's, let's go on. Hang on here. Let's read the scripture so we have some context. Judges 6, we're going to look at... Uh, verses 1 through 10. So again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, or strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land, ruined crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock in their tents like a swarm of locusts. It was impossible to count the men in their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. We can see that you know, God's plan here is working, because that's what usually would happen. They would kind of ignore God until there was no other choice for them. Uh, but they cry out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave, gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. And I think that um, it's interesting here because we don't really have a lot more information on the uh, on the prophet uh, here. But basically, the prophet just says this, and then all of a sudden drops out of the picture. So, and, and I don't know the time frame. So it could have been that this prophet was here, kind of gave his speech, said, "You guys blew it. God's mad." Later, you know, and, and then they're kind of like, "Oh, uh, what do we do?" You know, we don't know. So, so we don't know the time frame between that guy and Gideon, you know. But eventually, God. Is uh, raises up Gideon, so that's where right. we're going. Amen. Um, you know, I don't know that the prophet did much to soothe what Israel is feeling, though. But so there's no call to arms. You know, thanks, Mr. Prophet. Feel better now. Appreciate the reminder of how we're blowing it. 
definitely feel a more refined sense of guilt, maybe. But maybe this, maybe it's kind of like, you know, I was thinking with Halloween, you know, it's like the parent that warned the child to go easy on the candy. I actually might have been this person last night versus my daughter. But uh, and inevitably, when the kid says, my tummy hurts, like Shauna came home with Adara, like Adara had a nice haul that she did. And, uh, but she can't eat it all right now because of you know, certain allergies. And so I got a nice haul uh, from, from that. And so I was working on the sermon. I was like, oh, just not really paying attention. I probably ate like you know, six candy bars or something like that. And the little ones, you know. But yeah, I mean, it just it doesn't, you know. It's hard, sometimes hard to control yourself, right? Um, but you kind of wonder if it, if it really is like that, where the kid says, my tummy hurts, the parent rolls their eyes, fills a little bit of the, I told you so, and there's really not a lot that I can do for you at the moment now. You kind of did it to yourself. Yeah. And you wonder if God sometimes is kind of feeling that with the people of Israel. Um, you know, but it's the concern of the parent that keeps them engaged. They don't give up on the, on the kid. There's, they usually go in to console, even despite maybe not being able to do anything specifically. But the parent is usually engaged, and so is God. Um, and we see in the scriptures how concerned God is for our spiritual health. Because he continues to engage us, not just because he promised he would, but because he's driven by his love for us. Uh, he wants his children to learn the spiritual lessons so they don't end up with a spiritual tummy ache again, mm-hmm. again and again, by indulging in what's not good for them. Mm-hmm. So, but sometimes trouble is necessary so that hearts, hard hearts can be softened and so that we hear, we'll hear what the prophet says. So I think mm-hmm. this is also the case for the Israelites here in the story. So the prophet really helps, us, helps to reveal our true character. Um, and the prophet usually came before deliverance came. So, we, and actually you can see it repeated both in the Old Testament and New because you see that John the Baptist came before Jesus. So we even have a, an example there because uh, you know, Christ was the one that was destined to deliver God's people, but John the Baptist was preparing the way. Uh, and one of Christ's purposes was certainly to help us bear the griefs and sorrows of life. That's in Isaiah 53. But his greatest desire, just like God's, was to save us from our sins, uh, referencing Matthew 1, verse 21. And I think that's the same God, well, not that I think, it's the same God that we see here in Gideon's time. Uh, He wanted to save his people from from their sins, from themselves, really. Um, But are we listening to God when it comes down to it? Let's pick it back up here in, uh, in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But, sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Uh, where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How, how can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midian, all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If I have now found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an epoch of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them, offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, 
Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. Which is kind of a bummer after you prepared it, you know, just dump it out, right? Um, and Gideon did so. With the tip of a staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened, unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was an angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. It was a fairly traumatic experience, apparently, right? Um, so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it still stands in Oprah of the Abyssalites. My second point is, The Lord is with you. So not only for Gideon, but for us. So here we have Gideon introduced, not exactly the most glorious start for our hero, right? Uh, but we kind of appreciate his humble beginning. Uh, but Gideon's questioning what he knows of God. You know, he's accepted for a, basically as a fact that God's abandoned them. Pretty much flat out says that, you know, why has God abandoned us? Or he has abandoned us. You know, he knew the stories from his childhood. So he had, he had the stories of, of Israel's history passed down. Um, but that might have been where it ended. They were just stories because it obviously was not affecting the people's hearts because they were worshiping a different God. Um, and it didn't, it, the stories didn't really match what he was undergoing currently, you know, with his understanding of God. So he was confused. You know, and you've got to wonder, or sometimes we are confused with what we, when we, when what we understand about God isn't what we feel like we're actually experiencing in life. You know that can be that can be a definitely a, a, a challenging place to be in of reading the Bible and saying like how do I put the God that I see in the Bible in the perspective of what I'm going through in my life right now and still feel like He's a loving God? I've had many conversations with people that yeah. that's where they're at. They just can't get beyond yeah. it, you know. And it, and it can be a very challenging question. Um, but the Midianites were basically. Nomads who preyed on other nations and took what they wanted. So they're the desert pirates of the time. Hmm. Right? They had grown in numbers to the point where Israel, uh, without any firm leadership, um, they just saw this as a losing battle. There's nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. You know, as soon as you worked on something hard and you kind of reaped the benefits of it, and they, they would swarm in and gone. So it was a little bit, a little frustrating here for them. And so they've resorted, and Gideon here has resorted to trying to thresh the wheat in a wine press to hide it. So, I mean, it's pretty depressing, actually. You know, they're, uh, they're, in a, they're in a tough spot as a nation. This is the promised land, right? So they're basically prisoners in their own promised land. Um, so, and, and Gideon, from this scripture, you know, evidently saw himself not as a strong man, but really a product of his family, his upbringing, his current circumstances. Uh, you know, kind of a victim mentality, really. But God apparently saw a different version of Gideon and saw the warrior underneath all that uncertainty. And God often uses what people see uh, as, as, or consider as weak and foolish. You know, he uses those to shame the strong right. and wise things. It's, it's a scripture in uh, 1 Corinthians. And so this is, falls right along with that as well. Gideon didn't have a dream for himself, apparently, but you know, he definitely looks to be carried along by the survival instincts. That's about where he was at. Get through today, maybe things will be better next year. Don't die. I prefer not to have my wheat that I just threshed get stolen. You know, that's kind of where he was living. So he was kind of shocked by the Lord's statement, you know, go, am I not sending you? Because that, he's kind of like, you know, he's the only one there, really, so I guess he's talking to me. You know, and, but in that he was being sent on a mission, so it's, 
you know, what's, what's Gideon, Gideon's perspective on this is kind of like, you know, that seems, that seems very specific, yet lacking a lot of detail at the same time, Mr. Angel, you know, and are you sure you got the right address? You know, is this the, another guy named Gideon down the street? You know, people mix this up all the time. I don't know if you really think it's me. A lot of people named Gideon in my decade, you know, but he was wondering, like, do you, do you have the right guy? Um, but something did spark in him here because he did say when God said, I will be with you because it's some, and also some it's interesting to see that at some point it transitions to both the angel of God who is there with him. And then it says the Lord is speaking to him. So I don't know how this plays out, um, but uh, I, I, I take it to that the, the angel of the Lord basically in human form is there and, and Gideon is also hearing the voice of the Lord speaking to him. So he has two things going on. That's the way I'm picturing it. Not totally sure here. But he was definitely, he had a flicker of hope as his faith was stirred by God. And sometimes really that's all you need uh, to get a little faith is just spend a little time with God. Uh, you know, not, hopefully not hearing voices so much, but, you know, hearing God through, you know, beauty, uh, the beauty around you or just quiet times or answered hopes. You know, just hearing the voice of God in those times. And he might not have understood it clearly, but with the angel of the Lord standing there and talking to him, he was beginning to believe that he wasn't going to be alone in this adventure. So that was a good thing. But in his lack of faith, I think, uh, in terms of it was, was it God really speaking to him, didn't make, make God angry at all. Now, I've often wondered about that when I've read this story in the past of like, you know, does God get mad? And, you know, like if you're like, look, God, that's that's awesome. But how do I know that's really you? You know, I mean, does God feel angry with that? Well, like, what do you mean? How do you know? I'm me. You know, but we don't see that. That was God's perspective here. And is the way he, in his interaction with Gideon, he was uh, he was patient with Gideon. Now, honestly, it almost seemed like he expected it. Um, but you know, Gideon was testing the waters, uh, and he got off to a slow start. But he immediately read the engines once he understood it was God. So let's pick it up again in in Judges uh, six, starting in twenty five. That same night, the Lord said to him, "Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old." Tear down your father's altar to Baal and uh, Baal and cut it down. Cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God at the top of this height, using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on a newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they, were carefully, when they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded to Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down their share pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around them, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him should be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon, Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. I, kind of, I really like that scripture. Dad stepped in here and uh, you know, called their bluff on it. You know, and they, call, they all went away in a huff. Uh, but it was kind of cool. But you know, the town evidently is deep into Baal worship. Um, and people noticed it right away. It was the first thing they noticed. You know? So maybe they're, you know, they get up. Maybe is that something the first thing they do in the morning? I don't know. But they were definitely into Baal worship, uh, whatever it was. And, uh, and that was the whole reason God was intervening here. Yeah, but Gideon was really still building his confidence, you can see, because he didn't just do it right there in the daytime. He was still kind of 
He was working on it, you know, and he was fearful. But he was, you see those beginnings of trust um, still mixed with the fears of his reality. And I think sometimes it's really tough to take a stand on something unpopular in front of people who have known you like for a long time, known you from youth, uh, you know, because oftentimes those guys are the critics who wield the most influence with you. And I think for some of us, and I know for myself, following Jesus, you know, it was definitely a big deal um, because it it draws a line in the sand, you know, oftentimes with family or just, you know, because by by saying, like, I'm a Christian and here's the standard, it basically tells other people, like, here's the standard of Jesus, and they immediately will go, well, you're judging me. You know, you can almost make that, you know, that quick thing because they see the line and they're like, well, I'm not there, so you're judging me. It was kind of reality. This was Gideon's reality, too, I think, you know. Uh, you've, you've increased the ante, and now everybody at the table has to make a choice, right? Um, and the, the ante costs you all you have, so it's not a choice made lightly. And, uh, and funny enough, we even see Jesus struggling to convince his family uh, and the townspeople when, when he started his ministry. So it's not, it's not all too different from what we might have experienced or do experience. But the important part here is we see that Gideon's obedience to God. In verse 33... Now all the Midianites, the Malachites, and the other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan, camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Bizarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, by my hand as you promised, look, I will place a wolf fleece in the threshold, on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece out and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me to make one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. So we can see here that God, uh, Gideon's still taking steps of faith, but he's still kind of wanting to check in with God just to make sure that you know, God is still there and doesn't pop out of the picture. Uh, but as soon as he blew the trumpet, he was committed. People were looking at him. All right? So it's like as soon as you stand up and say, all right, let's go. Everyone's like, all right, you're the leader. And he's like, ah, oh, I don't want to be the leader. You know, but he was beginning to feel the pressures of leadership here and wondered if, this, if he was really the right guy for the job. You know, he's still kind of uncertain of doing it on his own, needed to break through that mindset of whether or not it was really God's plan and if it was actually possible. And, uh, you know, I think asking for the multiple signs from God wasn't so much about the assurance that he felt he needed because the problem wasn't with God's power. It was really just his perception of it. Um, but again, we see no hesitation on God's part for working with an imperfect, average person lacking faith, which to me is encouraging. Amen. I believe that, you know, God was patient through Gideon's uncertainty as he needed time to develop his own faith and not just have the stories from his childhood. And the stories that had been passed down about their history, but it, the heart had not, uh, and the obedience had not. And, you know, can we really see that now when we look around at our world? Right. You know, is it that much different? You know, many, I think, profess to have a faith in God or be a follower of Jesus, but, you know, sometimes you wonder if it's just an inherited tile versus a deliberate lifestyle choice. Right? Um, just you know, kind of a reality, I think, of our world. The church pews will fill up at Easter and Christmas, but the rest of the year kind of shows where it might be really at, um, uh, where hearts are at, at least. 
But God's purposes may not always be clear to us in regards to what is happening in our lives. Um, but whatever is happening, God is definitely using it as an opportunity to help build your faith. And you know how we respond to that is up to us. It's our choice. But it's understandably easier, easier, or it's understandably easy to be bitter, like Gideon, you know, hiding in a wine press, thinking, you know, my world stinks. Sure. This is my reality. Uh, you feel like the cards are stacked against you. You can't fathom how God would allow your current situation or, or heartache. But just like Gideon, you know, I think that taking those initial steps towards trusting God is something that we all need to do. Right. And uh, God's promised to be with us to the very end of the age in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, and it's His desire to heal Matthew thirteen fifteen and First Timothy two four. Let's write that down real fast. The Lord is with you. All right. So we have God's promises. Let's pick it back up here in Judges seven, verse one here. Third point: You can't do it on your own. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon with his new name. And all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that, or in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce, to the, announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave, uh, may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. you got to feel like you know, Gideon, uh, Gideon was kind of like, at first was like, yeah, come on, 32,000 guys, come on. And then like two-thirds of them leave. He's like, dogs. All right, 10,000 guys. Nope. But then the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will, I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. Then the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped their, with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With, with the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give, you the, give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now, I've got, I got to figure that these guys, um, you know, Gideon's obviously he's kind of maybe struggling with the numbers possibly. Hopefully at this point he's a little bit beyond that in his faith. Sure. You know, he's had a few tests with God. He feels like, okay, God's in control. But 32,000 down to 300 when it was said that the Midianites were like, couldn't be counted. The odds are, are, are not in his favor, you know, so he's definitely struggling. I would think. And I also think that, you know, the cast of characters he's got, this is just me kind of thinking it over here, but this could be like Gideon's dream. Um, you know, the guys that ended up on Gideon's team here, uh, the ones that lapped like dogs out of the mouth, out of cupped hands, so if you get the water and what, you're just like, like a dog, you know, like, already he's got the weirdy, weirdos, maybe, you know. He's got the weirdos of the camp, and he's like, oh, you know, so I'm kind of picturing this, you know, so, you know, he's got the beanpole guy, can't even pick up the heavy bag full of trumpets off the ground. The guys who have a bit too good of a year with the pasta that the Midianites didn't steal from him, trying to squeeze into armor that's too small. Uh, the guy talking to his imaginary friend in the corner, the old man who's seen too many sunrises, complaining of arthritis, the archer sharpshooter guy with big Coke bottle glasses. You know, he's getting all these guys. You know, his 300. He's like, oh, man. Um, you know, but... It, he was, he was needing a, a bit more faith here, so let's 
God, and God was giving him the opportunity. So let's read, let's pick it up again in verse 9. Um, all of that was my interpretation. That's, that's how I might feel. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. And if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, <clears throat> the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. The camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I have a dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He probably did his little victory dance right there, trying to be quiet outside the camp. But he returned to the camp of Israel and called, called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When, we get to, when I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. <coughs> they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The, 300, uh, the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed their jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and the holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to uh, Beth Shuda so, toward uh, boy, I'm going to butcher these words. Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabath. Okay, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers through the hill country of Ephraim, saying, "Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah." So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb, coincidentally, maybe, huh? and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. Uh, they pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb, or Zeb, to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. You know, at some point here, like I was saying, Gideon had to do the numbers. So the impossible to count versus is 300. Each man would basically be responsible for killing 450 people apiece based on the numbers that you get a little bit later on of how many men they eventually killed because it was like 135,000 Midianites that fell in this battle. So, I mean, this is maybe not counting Ephraim, the people that came down, their, their cousins out of the hills, so to say. But we'll just say that if it was the original 300... You know, when Gideon was having that pep talk, he's like, all right, this is the plan. You know, you can't wait for to hear this plan, right? They're all standing there with a bunch of empty jars and some torches and a, you know, a couple of trumpets. Anybody bring a sword? Uh, you know, that's not, it doesn't seem like that was present in the plan here. So we don't know at what point God told him about prepara- you know, the preparations here, but I don't know. But um, it's another faith-building experience here. Um, you know, and obviously... Gideon took God up on the if you are afraid statement, you know, 
Like he went right down to the camp. He needed a little bit of confidence building still. Right. Um, but this time he definitely did not see this as a coincidence. You know, I think a lot of times we can see our victories as a role, as result of good preparation or just like working smarter, not harder, sure. versus yeah. actually God gave us the victory. Yeah. Amen. Gideon was really learning to be a leader by learning to trust God. Um, where, we'll skip down here. But you can, you can see this battle going, going wrong real quick, right? So once they're all on the outside edge, and Gideon says, All right, go! They all smash their jars, stand up, blow their trumpets, and raise their torches. And then there's like kind of an awkward pause when the guys in the camp are like, that was a waste of a good jar. You know, turns to the other guys like, go get them, boys. You know, I mean, but what are they going to do? You know, and they got, they got nothing. They got torches and trumpets, right? I mean, the Midianites could have just overwhelmed them. Um, and I think that what Gideon saw here was like, it was God the whole time. And there's no way this plan was going to work. Right, um, but it's it's. I thought it was funny. Yeah, just I, I can I can picture this and just I know that Gideon probably dreamed about this like of how it might go down. You know, just like this could go really bad, um, but it wasn't the way it played out. And the Midianites were thrown in panic, ended up killing each other in a stampede. It was just really, it was crazy how it worked. Um, we're not going to go over uh, too many more scriptures here, but I'm going to just quickly paraphrase in Judges eight. So turn over to Judges eight. And verse 4 and 5. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops, troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. I'm picking up in verse 10. Now, Zeba and Zalm... Let's figure out how to pronounce that. Zalmuna were in Kekor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen, swordsmen had fallen. Um, Gideon had went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbaha and fell upon the unsuspecting army and basically um, took the king's cap- captive route of the entire army. In verse 18, Then he asked the two kings, what, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? We don't really know maybe at what part of the battle Tabor was or Tabor. Um, but apparently he was fishing for some information about either kin or somebody who had died at the, their hands. And I found this interesting. He said, men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon wasn't a prince. He had a fairly humble beginning. What did these kings see in this guy? that had just been in a wine press hiding like two days before or whatever. You know, these guys saw a warrior. They saw a prince. That type of transformation doesn't happen without God. But the cool thing is, is it can happen with God and it could be us. It could be you. Uh, they saw Gideon as a man of valor. And they, they probably, maybe they assumed he was a great leader or prince of the Israelites. I don't know. They're trying to flatter him before they, their impending execution. But having a trust in God allows you to carry yourself with dignity and pride. Right. You know, it's not like a self-centered uh, pride, but one of peace and just unshakable spirit. And it comes by trusting that God's with you. And it's very different from confidence in oneself. So the, and the Gideon that we see here is a very different man than the one we met two chapters earlier. Uh, there was a, just going along with the Halloween theme here, there was an actor um, that did a series of horror, horror films in the last few decades. 
He was quoted this week. We were talking about it at the party on Friday night. He was quoted this week on, a, on a, the question of confidence. Uh, for him, it was just uh, making the movies. and Because uh, they had started out on a shoestring budget. And uh, the question, he was like, are you more confident now as an actor since the film series went from a no-budget film to now it's like a cult classic? And you got thousands of enthusiastic followers. And he said, you know, if you met someone who's extremely confident, they're one click away from being completely unconfident. And I feel like I've seen this. You know, this is like, it's a pretty good observation. And he's probably potentially being honest about himself and probably Hollywood in general. But I'm pretty sure that someone with, someone with a lot of that confident bravado, you know, I've seen this in the business world, it, a lot of times it's really a show. Yeah. Uh, and it's, in some ways, in the business world, a necessary show to get stuff done. But... You know, it works to close deals, but the real truth is really seen when that person goes home. Uh, you see their home life or challenges that they face when they're away from the spotlight. You know, having the bearing of a prince is different from having the appearance of one. Uh, Gideon's faith in God, uh, though maybe starting shallow, was enough now to command the attention and the faith uh, of his fellow countrymen. And we're going to, we'll go ahead and we'll finish this up here. Um, Come on, Rob. I'll be here. Also because my battery says it's about to die. Uh, let's finish it up over in Hebrews. In chapter 11 where we started. But faith changes a person. Hebrews 11.32 And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, <coughs> and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There are others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might uh, gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You know, what could possibly cause people to live their lives with such an outcome? You know, faith that God has planned something better for us. So as we go about our weeks this week, and as my battery dies on my laptop, let's just remember that God has something better planned for us. And that we, like Gideon, um, we, can, we can know God and be different because of Him. So, thanks. Thank you. Amen.